Based out of a failed attempt to remake Creature from Black Lagoon, The Shape of Water saw Guillermo del Toro question, what would have actually happened if Kay had gone off with the Gilman? Unquestionably a unique romantic movie. Here we find del Toro is most sympathetic for his own Gilman creation, while at the same time crafting some of the most visually arresting footage of his career, something the Academy would reward his efforts for by rewarding the film not only the Best Film, but also Best Director Awards at the 90th Academy Awards. But is this really as enchanting a romance as Del Toro would have us believe? Or is this more just Del Toro trying to provide sympathy for his, another of his monster creations? I'm Owen. I'm Kim. And you're listening to Movies and Tea. Let's take it to the booth. final episode you know the last uh last time we're we we're here to do this you know we're re- reunited again to bring you this final episode of movies and tea for this season uh, as we wrap up the guillermo del toro back catalog uh by looking at shape of water which is the film which uh finally won him the the grand prize so to speak i mean he got the best not only best film but also best director award for Shape of Water and it's certainly a film which made a number of top 10 lists the year it came out so Kim uh, this wasn't the first time viewing for yourself it was the first time viewing for myself so what uh, your sort of initial thoughts on Shape of Water I remember when I first saw it I really loved you know as, as usual you know Del Toro does a really good job with the visuals and just how everything is, you know, shown and just like, you know, the the differences in color and, and a lot of that sort of thing. And obviously this one is a second time jumping into a romance in a pretty much fantasy setting. Um, I've never seen uh, The Creature of Black Lagoon before, so I have no comparison to okay. it. But I think that the second time watching it, I actually felt like it was kind of like a little bit like the main... Uh, the main girl was um, was kind of like the Little Mermaid who lost her voice and, you know, she has, you know, she likes to dance and she likes music and that sort of thing. I kind of had that sort of feeling and then I felt like, you know, it was kind of like a reverse in a way because you have obviously the creature who she encounters and, um, and you know, the thi- and whatever follows after that. And in more of an adult setting, obviously, in a, in a darker story. Um, in all that sense. I don't know if you agree with me, but that's how I, I felt the second time watching it. I think it still lives up the second time, which is which is good because obviously um, if people haven't listened to Crimson Peak yet, which you probably should, I didn't like my second viewing of Crimson Peak. So obviously this one 
del toro has a better grasp of not only like j- just like the romantic elements as well as the fantasy as well and and i guess the mystery i guess i don't i don't know how to describe this film yeah it's many things that del toro brings together i mean obviously at the same he's trying to craft a monster film and he's trying to craft a romantic film and i think the fact that it's it's a it's a woman falling in love with a fish man I think that got a lot of people's attention straight off. Um, and at the same time, it, it's kind of cute. It's, it, 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 for some reason, perhaps it's just the Del Toro logic rubs off on us all, but for some reason, this film works. And I was kind of enchanted by it. I mean, the film itself, it's set in 1962, uh, be it a fantastical version 1962. So we've got elements of the Cold War and we're introduced to uh, this woman who's called Lisa and she her backstory was that she was basically found abandoned as a child by the side of a river she's got these mysterious wounds on the back of her neck and she's completely mute and only communicates through sign language um, at the same time her real friend her only sort of like friends are her closeted next door neighbor Giles who works as an advertising illustrator and her co-worker Zelda um, who she works with at this I, I mean how would you describe it it's sort of like a research base it's a military yeah it's like base. a it's like a government top secret facility for all things you know that the government kind of is experimenting but doesn't want the world to know about yet kind of thing yeah so it's um it's kind of like a pre it's almost like uh, Delta was trying to create his own precursor to the Hellboy Institute in many ways because Part of, the, part of the uh the main part of the story is obviously this facility brings in this mysterious gill man who's been captured in the amazon river by colonel richard strickland who's uh basically he's he's a bit of a bastard played by uh michael shannon and he is just completely by the board he's just there to keep this creature under wraps and so that it can be studied and he thinks like nothing of it using a cattle prod on it and he he's got very little humanity for this creature he just sees it as being a monster whereas Alyssa stumbles across this becomes this creature and starts visiting him in secret and the two form this like bond there uh, she teaches him sign language and feeds him eggs and plays music for him and i don't know about yourself kid but do you see the link between this gill man and abe sapien from hellboy well, I mentioned it when we watched Hell when we reviewed Hellboy already. That's that, right. Yeah, that the creature was, you know, obviously I didn't want to talk too much about it because at that time you haven't you hadn't seen The Shape of Water yet. So there's like definitely this um this obviously this link that I feel of something like a precursor to to Hellboy and what happened after that, you know. Um so I don't know what the creature, you know, obviously maybe it's a bit of an inspiration as well. Maybe it's kind of like bringing his projects together because, you know, Del Toro kind of has that um, kind of like, you know, Del Toro seems to be that type of director and that who who likes to bring, you know, he likes using the same actors that he works with and he likes to bring in a lot of like similar things that we can relate to. And I mean, even in this film, I mean, the fact that you mentioned um Michael Shannon, who plays uh, Strickland. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, every single film that Del Toro has done and that we've reviewed pretty much, I think maybe other than Mimic, um, there's this kind of, like, dominant male character who's 
kind of, as you call it, a bastard. (laughs) 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 He's kind of like that dominant male. He's the human villain. And it's something that I think um, Del Toro does a really good job at making because he creates these creatures and these stories for these creatures and and a real character to them that really turns around how we view. Like, you know, obviously we always think creatures as, like, destructive beings and they're kind of always the villain of the story and creature features and stuff like that. But in his movies, the monsters are rarely the bad guys. But in fact, um, our human nature is much scarier when, you know, they're taken to extremes. And with that, you know, obviously Michael Shannon is perfectly casted here because... Michael Shannon is just such a talented actor, and I think that sometimes he doesn't get all the credit that he he should have. I guess mm. because I guess more in these years since he's been casted into more uh, more bigger movies now. But I mean, like Michael Shannon is, is just fantastic, and everything he does, whether he's like this bad guy or like really good or like a really paranoid person, he does it really, really well. Yeah, Michael Shannon's appearance here as Strickland, he kind of bucks the trend that we've seen in the previous Del Toro movies where he's always had the handsome brute. Uh, when we obviously look at Pan's Labyrinth, uh, we we had the stepfather character played by uh, Sergi Lopez. Uh, when we look at Devil's Backbone, again, we had Uedo um, Norigo as uh, Jacinto. And where you have these like good-looking guys who do very bad things. Now, I don't, I don't know. I mean, Michael Shannon may be uh considered like a good looking guy to 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 my audience i don't know um but he didn't seem to sort of fit into that same sort of mold as the other than the sort of guys that we've seen previously so it was a bit of a change up in in that respect and i'm I'm not sure whether del toro decided to had it in mind that he was going to introduce another handsome brute and sort of changed it when he obviously got the ability to cast michael shannon in the film i'm not too too sure whether it was ever uh, he was ever going to continue the trend in this film, but certainly Michael Shannon really, if you need an antagonistic force in your film, then I think Michael Shannon's kind of like that force of nature, and he certainly is here as he's just completely unstoppable. He's very driven in his beliefs, and just uh, watch him play the the antagonist here is just really it has a nice, a nice contrast, obviously, to all the romantic imagery that we obviously see between Alyssa and. Um, her amphibian man or gill man whatever way you want to call it um played by doug jones and whenever i look at look at the monster i mean i can't help but obviously draw those comparisons to abe sapien just because of the design even though he's obviously lacks uh, lacks many of uh, abe's sort of humanistic characters just there's certain elements that still sort of link him i mean the fact that they both like eggs they both got these very sort of humanoid sort of qualities to them so they yeah. both like music. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe perhaps if he was more, as I said, if he wasn't so feral, if he had been more humanized, um, the links would have been a little more obvious. So, but I mean, how do you? I mean, I think we might as well just sort of get straight to the point with this one. I mean, Alyssa and the amphibian man, their relationship. I mean. Did it come off as implausible? Did I mean? Did you buy into the romantic angle here, or? I mean, I'm kind of like this mega. Like, I really like fantasy, and I really watch a lot of romance. So I think that to me, anything is possible. Mm. So 
I didn't think it was impossible. I just think that it was like it kind of matched the character because um, Elisa is kind of like she's very she's odd. Let's put it that way. <laughs> she's very odd. She's kind of she she seems like you know she really plays the part where you know Sally Hawkins makes it really believable that you know she deep down believes she doesn't fit in. Like she's kind of like odd and she doesn't fit in and and it goes with you know everybody that she. She's really good friends with, you know, Giles, who is played by um, uh, Richard Jenkins. Yeah. Um, and he also is the narrator of the story, which um, I'm going to touch on a little later, I think, uh, on another point. But, I mean, like, you know, Richard Jenkins at that time is was, you know, being a kind of like a gay man, <laughs> a closeted gay man. He doesn't really acknowledge it. He's not really successful either. He seems to be, you know, um, falling behind with times as well. So there's a lot of things that, you know, Richard Jenkins also brings to the table, obviously, because he's also a, a really great actor himself. Uh, at the same time, you know, you have Octavia Spencer, who plays Zelda, who, you know, I love Octavia Spencer. I think she's really fantastic because she has a really great attitude. And she kind of adds this, like, you know, she balances out all those quiet moments um, with Elisa not speaking, you know. So... Uh, it's it's interesting to see, you know, the balance that all these characters brought to the table, making, you know, the fact that it really emphasizes how odd she is. Yeah. And in that sense, as she connects with this creature who she feels like she can teach because she can teach to be like her. Um, so that's why she's teaching her sign language. And, you know, she feels this connection to him. Um, and obviously, I'm sure there's some sort of, like, attraction to him because, you know, he is this kind of, like... He, the monster is designed in a way where he has, like, a bunch of, like, uh, very, I don't know, very, like, a really well-cut body, I guess. And at the same time, you know, he, he he's not ugly. He's kind of he's kind of charming if you look at it a few more times. Um, <laughs> a little bit creature-y amphibians on that angle, obviously. But I think she sees, she sees it a little different, is that, you know, love can be in all types of forms. And for her, you know, she... She feels this is kind of like something that, you know, she really feels this connection and she really feels that, you know, this is some, I, I don't know, I don't know, like, I, I, just, I don't know how to word it, but I think that she really desires something like this at this moment. And that's why we also have, like, a lot of nudity and we always have that, you know, that um, masturbation scene with her in the bathtub. Oh, yeah, and, that was the first, like, five minutes of the film. It was yeah, like, exactly. What the hell? Yeah. So I think that was all a lead up to just her really wanting someone in her life. And this per this kind of amphibian man coming into her life at that time who also didn't fit in and was being, you know, looked down on and, you know, not not treated well in that sense. Yeah, definitely. I think she's when I look at the character Lisa, it's very I kind of want to contra uh, compare to Audrey Tattoo's character in uh, Am Amelie. Um, the fact that she's sort of like this I think if this was obviously set in a later period we'd call her a manic pixie dream girl but here she's got these sort of odd qualities but at the same time she's got a very good and warm nature to her so you can understand why people sort of are drawn to her and so willing to sort of work work with her and uh, be it obviously when we and the older characters have different like ways that they sort of communicate with her when we look at Giles it's very much sort of like based around the sign language when we look at Zelda though uh, she sort of picks up on 
different sort of gestures and expressions and she kind of fills in a lot of her own blanks i mean the sequence with them uh, where they they're they're talking the sort of like the next day after that she sort of like gives into urges and has sex with the the amphibian man and they're having a conversation about how that actually works and just the the simple hand gestures for how uh where he, where he hides his penis should we say it was just i thought it was just kind of charming it was just to see the two mimic the hand movements and it and you see like zelda's face of like oh so that's how that works <laughs> um i thought that was kind of kind of charming i mean you know the jumping off point where the two were um listen and the uh, Gilman sort of start their romance which is, is a bit clumsy. The lead up is fine, and once they're established as being in a relationship, it's it's fine. And certainly, Del Toro at least gives us the benefit of providing enough humanistic qualities there, to, so it's not so much of a leap. It's not like she's hooking up with like you know some the, something like the thing or <laughs> like. Uh, <laughs> Whenever we, I mean, even when we look at Hellboy and we look at um, Tom Hanks character, um, the fact that she's in this relationship with Hellboy, who has again, he's he's very sort of got very humanoid in his appearance, and if it weren't for the horns and the big right hand, I mean, he would you uh, is a very sort of humanoid sort of appearance. It's not like he's got anything particularly strange there. So I think uh, he he kind of pushes the boat out a little more with the Gill Man because. With the gunman, it's very, as I said, it's a lot more. Uh, it's a little requires a little more. I don't know belief from the audience, should we say? That yeah. uh, that this this relationship will work, but as it goes on, I mean, the the more you see it, the more you sort of like, you know, you come to accept it. It's, it's like, yeah, she's her boyfriend just happens to be a gill man. <laughs> well, I think I think uh, you know I always say this about romance um, is that part of a successful romance movie is making it charmingly believable. So you really need to believe in, you know, the romance that they feel for each other. And I think that I'm not sure about the creature, like the, the creature himself, the Gilman himself, like it, whether I actually believe his feelings until, you know, like you said, it was a bit clumsy in the beginning. Yeah. And then at, you know, the second half, you really see, you know, the connection they have, but you know, in the beginning, I think that the charm really comes from Sally Hawkins playing, you know, but being Alyssa. She really brings out that, you know, she's kind of like, you know, she feels very innocent. And at the same time, she also has that kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, a, a puppy love sort of feeling where it's so cute. And the things she does sometimes is is also makes her such a, a charming person also, you know, like those things when, you know, she sits with like, uh, um, Giles and they're watching TV and they they have this like dancing scene and they start tapping her feet and and it's like and then at the same time she always does that like and we realize where that comes from because before that as she was leaving the place she like taps taps a little dance before she goes to work yeah and it really brings like this kind of like positive character to her and then we soon see these layers in her that as we learn about you know as she explains why she wants to um, rescue the the you know the creature um and just just you know from there we start seeing you know there is this you know more lonely side to her and um just you know the desire she has to be with and the necessity she has of being with this person because you know her love has become so strong that she's willing to do anything 
no matter the danger to you know to to you know be with the person that she loves and i think that in that sense at that point i think was when i was really convinced you know because it was such a it was such a strong feeling of you know romance and love and and just you know the connection she had yeah i have to i mean i have to obviously question the the plan because her main sort of plan is that she's going to release him into this nearby canal uh which opens up into the ocean um why does it have to be based around this canal i mean obviously we've got to have this reason for him to be in her apartment but is there no other way to get to the ocean in this city is it just this one access point for the canal it just seemed like uh an unnecessarily way to sort of stall stall the plot i mean obviously it's important in terms of their relationship and the fact that initially she's keeping him in her bathtub and then we as it goes on and their relationship sort of intensifies we go into these more fantastical moments where (laughs) she's flooding her bathroom like her bath she somehow she's able to fill her bathroom with water um which doesn't fall cause the uh, ceiling to cave in or anything like that it creates this magical room of water that uh, only causes a small amount of water to run into the sort of dime cinema that's underneath her apartment so and and I think there's so many elements there's so many moments in this film where Del Toro seems to be like you know I'm just going to skip out on plausibility just because I really like how this is going to look and certainly mm-hmm. when we look at that flooded bathroom sequence with the two a sort of holding each other in the submersion of water is so stunning to watch and yeah. how that's sort of replicated when we get the sort of final shot of the film at the end um, where you can see that they're they're now finally free they're not confined to to this to this room they're now free to to go where they wherever they want to go even though it does kind of leave it open open ended what actually happens i mean yeah yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's the part which I think that, you know, the narrator being a big part of it is telling, is retelling the story in a lot of ways. In At the end, we, re, we learn that it's really through his imagination also. Because in his mind, he's, the ending is imagining a good ending, right? Yeah. It imagines that it's a good ending, but it also tells us that, well, this is what he thinks happens. And and obviously, like I, I bring this up as the narrator is also Richard Jenkins, who plays Giles, who kind of witnessed the ending part. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, I don't know what else to say. Uh, <laughs> no, no but I think that um, another part to talk about, other than you know the romance, is that we also have this kind of like um, you know we have the part with Strickland and just the creature and and then we have Michael Stolberg being um, Dr. Hofstetler and that's another big part of the story and if we talk about you know that escape scene i think that the the rescue the rescuing of him was really more detailed and successful only because <laughs> Dr. Hofstetler decided to step in and help them yeah i mean it's interesting, obviously, with with Hostel because he's got this. Obviously, he shows his fascination with with this creature. Whereas, uh, when we we look at Mark um, Shan's character, he's just basically is sort of like if they they want to destroy the creature, fine, we destroy the creature. He, he cares very little for it. He's um, and it's it's kind of interesting, obviously, when we 
get further into the film and I'm just going to say we're just going to there may be spoilers ahead so you know if you haven't seen already this film spoiler than the tennis stuff so. <laughs> so yeah I mean if, if we haven't spoiled it for you already we're just probably going to spoil some other stuff for you now and when we find out that he's actually a Soviet spy yeah. uh, later in the film and I kind of love the fact that it's all these minority sort of groups that, that help her um, obviously Giles is Giles is gay, Octavia is black and um, with Hofstetter he's a secret Soviet spy and just the fact that the, all these groups are the ones that uh, choose to help Alyssa I thought was a really interesting sort of theme, theme that... but it's, it's really, as you bring that up it's really funny because I find that even more funny if you think about I found it as enjoyable as ever because Michael Shannon was such like Strickland was such a such a villainous character that when we see these things happen, like these bad things happen to him, like, you know, bad karma coming back <laughs> around, like his car, his new car gets smashed. And then, um, and then, you know, he comes back around and he's like, you know, he's like, oh, who's, who's responsible for this? And it's, it's just like, who are you, you know, what, give me names and, and, and ranks and stuff. And it was just like, no ranks, no names. <laughs> they just clean. <laughs> And then you just see, like, he's been messed with by, like, who he believes is the lowest in his in his chain of command. And I think that really, like, that really, like, kicks him. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kicks him in the ass, you know, because it's really, um, it, it's really, like, for, for a character like him, you know, who believes in, you know, the dominant male, who really, you know, says a lot of things to belittle... Um, you know, Elissa and um, and Zelda. We we really see, you know, like that fat, that moment where he doesn't believe that that's really happening to him. Yeah, and it's funny you should mention his car because I mean the car that he's driving around in this puce car, but he's convinced that it's green because for some reason there's this real obsession with the color green running through this movie. Everything seems to be green and. All the food is green, and characters constantly talk about green being the color, color like the color of the future, and it's this really desirable color. And the fact he buys his puce car, and the salesman convinces him it's green. It's what? What is this obsession with green? I've been, I've been trying to find like some like great revelation of it on the internet um, since I watched it this morning, and no one can seemingly nail down what what is the um uh, the purpose of green i mean there's a lot of people saying that green is associated with falseness um uh, which would make tr red the color of truth because uh she obviously when we look at Alyssa the day after she has sex with the girl man she's wearing a red dress and um did you have any theories on the color green i don't really have any theories i thought it was just like a choice just because a choice. it was like you know so related to you know the water and all that yeah. and and just being underwater and the creature itself being kind of green um and i think it was just for me i think it was just a color design but i mean since you mentioned it because maybe it's kind of like maybe it's like green green is the future is kind of like the environment because you know obviously right yeah. now green is the future so maybe it has something to do with that, I would say. So um, just, you cut out completely then. So you were saying maybe it's... I, I said maybe um, 
Yeah, maybe it has to do with like you know uh, the fact that you know green is green is the future, as in like the environment right now. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, if you think about it in that sense, um, there's a lot of you know like the creature himself is part of nature. You know, the you know the Amazonians worshipped him as a god, and you know, and that's kind of like you know maybe it's a bit of um, kind of like just just saying how you know they're they're not treating nature the way you know better because you know like they have no regard like as you said like strickland has no regard for you know this creature and all that stuff and that's why he hates green so much because he was really against this whole this whole like green car thing oh i hate green i don't want to see green kind of thing right so i think that perhaps that's that's the that's the deal right now is that um you know he doesn't maybe it's also the fact that he doesn't believe in you know this natural greatness and all this preserving of that uh of of the environment and all that sort of stuff i don't know uh i mean it did did the the uh, green jello we see did look pretty good um and i love the fact that giles keeps buying pie because he's attracted to this guy who works at (laughs) and then has a key lime pie which is also green yeah and and the fact he's he's just got all these pies that he's bought in um in his fridge it's just like all he has in his fridge is just half-eaten pies which i think was such a a really cool shot because they're all they went especially looking there all nearly identical slices it was but um yeah, I I mean I just really loved the the use of color in this film. It was very Wes Anderson esque in the fact that Del Toro was clearly working with a color palette here, and he used it to really great effect, and it really ties in nicely to the visual style that uh, runs throughout this film. I mean, it's very sort of dreamlike. It's very reminiscent of Jeanette and Caro, who did films like Delicatessen and City of Lost Children, and I think the a, a pair of directors we've we've frequently referenced their work as we've gone through the Del Toro filmography, um, and while they've obviously they're crafting sort of adult fairy tales, and Del Toro's sort of doing his own sort of take on sort of fairy tales and monsters and and uh, and things. It's this one, this film I have to say is really Del Toro is most fantastical. Uh, the other films all seem to have these like very grounded sort of elements to them, but with Shape of Water, it's, it's just re- him really just sort of like uh, just really pushing, putting it all out there, and just uh, as I said, just just enjoying being a visual director. I mean, at one point, I mean, the film was going to be shot in black and white, and I kind of like to think that we shot it in black and white that. Only certain objects would have been like colourfied, as in like you know Schindler's List and Rumblefish and uh, like Sin City. And part of me just wishes that it would just be like the green jello that'd be like you would see uh, in, in see the colour of that, and everything else would be black and white. Yeah, it'd be a bit like Sin City, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I, I can see where you're where you're going with that. I didn't know that originally that was in in the plans, um, but I think that. I think I would have enjoyed this a lot more in black and white. And like what you said with like hints of color, mm. uh, maybe like that emphasis on green or that emphasis on whatever, you know? Yeah, I mean... It would have really given... It would have given it um, a different twist, I think. Because mm. um, I think that The Shape of Water is a really great film. Um, I think that... I, I, I struggle sometimes to see films and really believe whether it is best picture quality um okay best director for sure i i do agree on that 
but I don't remember what else was in the competition that year, so <laughs> I don't know. Um, I mean, the Academy Awards, I mean, they're pretty notorious for, for missing it. I mean, we look at the year that Drive and We Need to Talk About Kevin came out and both got sort of snubbed for either like Best best Actor Awards, especially Tilda Swinton deserved a, a Best Actor nomination for that movie and just got snubbed completely. But certainly when we look at the the Best Picture um, category for, for that year, we've got uh, Call Me By Your Name, a.k.a. Brolita, uh, Darkest Hour, which I think was just more based on Gary Oldman's performance than anything there. Uh, Dunkirk, uh, Get Out. I mean, Get Out's pretty standard. Same with Ladybird, Phantom Fred, much like The Post and and Free Billboard, Free Billboards. There's nothing as visually driven um, as A Shape of Water, and, and certainly yeah, I, I think. Yeah, definitely. If you look at all the titles that you've mentioned right now, it's it's definitely this is more well rounded. Um, looking, I mean, obviously looking at looking at that thing. I mean, Ladybird, I would say, be contender, but it's it's too indie to for the Academy to consider it for like the big prize. I mean, it, it's so difficult to like look at this because you look at it and it's a very indie sort of field. I mean, Free Billboards, that's indie. Um, Get Out was obviously very indie, and uh, Call Me By Your Name could potentially have took it or Darkest Hour, but yeah, I've, I think I'm happy with the... I, I have no qualms with it winning Best Picture in that category. I think it it uh, definitely deserved it, so... Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember the first time I watched it, and I was really, really into it. I had little issues with it, I think. A lot of it is just... I think it's what you're talking about, like a lot of the plausibility of it. Yeah, and then it's like if you think too much about it, you're like, well, that's kind of impossible. But then when you watch Del Toro, you kind of have this like uh, fantasy meter that kind of just goes over the top, and you're okay with these things because that's just where his imagination goes. Um, and because of that fantasy element, like a lot of impossible things become plausible. So I think that that makes it, like, okay. And plus, like, you know, there's that whole visual thing that's really nice to look at. And um, I think this story was done really well. Probably one of his best stories he's written, I would say. Um, especially in that whole romance sort of concept. And, you know, the the really making this, like, villain... Um, like, you know, everyone had a lot of layers to them. No one felt like they weren't... You know they were they were dispensable, or they could be removed, and it wouldn't change anything. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, there's just I mean, just looking at, over the cast of characters here. I mean, there is no one that I can see who you would sort of take out. I mean, even when you look at sort of more minor characters, um, when we like look at the owner of the cinema, and just the importance the cinema sort of plays in in terms of their relationship, because obviously the and Fieberman, when he he uh, he he gets so sort of chased off by Giles because he attempts attempts to eat one of his cats, and uh, oh, that was that was that was so oh I hate scenes like that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't I can't deal with like cats being eaten and stuff. I love them too much to to watch that every time. I just I keep remembering it, and I'm just like oh, it's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he obviously. For some reason, the the girl man runs off to the cinema, um, and he's there watching Bible movies. And I don't know if that was supposed to sort of teach him more about humanity or or what was supposed to be going on there. But just 
seeing the two characters sort of unite there, it sort of it brings into it gives it gives it the location of purpose. So it's a film I think I need to go back and I need to watch a couple more times to fully appreciate all the little subtleties. I mean, there's we haven't even sort of touched on the magical powers of the Gilman, who's able to you know give Giles back his hair and um, obviously. Plays a, his abilities play very sort of key part in the in the sort of final scenes of this film. Um, although I did think that his sort of revenge on um, on Strickland was a bit over and done with a bit quick. It was sort of like, oh, yeah. you could have done this all this time, and you you wait till now to do this. Yeah, I mean, why'd you just take his fingers the first time? If I was getting tortured by someone, I'd just like you know be done with it, right? Well, I mean, he did have a he did have a cattle prod at the time, and I guess yeah. Another green thing, the pussy fingers. <laughs> uh, oh, so disgusting! Oh, but I mean, Strickland he pulls off his own finger, which when he's uh, talking to Zelda's husband, he sort of like loses it and he throws his finger yeah, across yeah, the room. Yeah. So. You you gotta you gotta respect a man who's willing to pull off his own fingers to make a point. So, well, to be fair, it was rotting. So yeah. I don't know how much pain he actually felt from that. But, um, but I I just it's just it's just you know it feels like it feels like you know kind of like Strickland was like um, where are they? They're in Baltimore or something, right? And I can't remember where they're where they're at. And he doesn't and he. And he, like, completely disses where he is at. Yeah. And he's like, oh, this is, like, a horrible place to be. And lo and behold, it gets much worse for him than it gets better. <laughs> so, you know, he's just hit with a lot of bad luck. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's just, I really think it has a lot to do with, like, I don't know, karma. Really just coming back to bite him in the ass. Um, but it was, you know, because the villain was... was you know, like, there was so many, so much bad to him yeah. in, in all manners that, like, I think it was it was one of the most satisfying villains I've ever watched. Especially when you, you see, like, like all the crap that happens to him and then at the end. <laughs> it was a very quick end. But I think that if they kept him going and going, it would be kind of like um, watching, I don't, I don't know, uh, I don't remember what Mission Impossible it was, but there was... One Mission Impossible with that, with that guy in a uh, blue, uh, was it Michael Bloomkiss? Can't remember. Um, who plays a villain and he just keeps coming back, even falling off floors and everything. <laughs> and it's just, I hate villains like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean at least they, I mean Del Toro at least makes the effort to try and humanize him. Uh, when we see his like white picket fence existence as away from from the facility. Uh, where he's got, you know, he's got the wife and he's got the two kids, and um, but then, but then I feel that that still doesn't really humanize him. It kind of makes him, makes him kind of a bad guy, also, because it kind of emphasizes on, you know, that those dominant male factors that he has of, you know, really controlling his wife, and his wife says something, and he, and then, you know, like in his mind, he's already like obsessing over something else, and you know, really, you know you know, shutting her up and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I felt like it was, there was, if he wasn't, 
Yeah. I was I was just about to say the scene when he when he, he first goes back to his house and he's having sex with his, his wife and she's complaining that he's getting blood on her. And he and he think he puts his hand over it, her mouth or something. I'm wasn't sure there was some deeper meaning to where his where his mind was supposed to be at that point or whether it's just supposed to show his sort of his single minded mentality. Um it's just I believe the first time I, I believe the first time I watched it and this time as well that it, it it was his fascination with Elisa and the idea of you know having a woman who didn't talk <laughs> and that sort of imagination behind it. Yeah, uh, it's certainly interesting to see Del Toro. I mean, I would say it's interesting to see Del Toro shoot such a a sexy movie, but. He certainly had elements of, uh, of of sex in his other films, especially his Spanish language films. When we look at uh, *Devil's Backbone* in particular, um, mm-hmm. that had some 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 interesting sexy moments. But uh, they were sort of like very post uh, sort of sequences. Where here he 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 takes he shoots a very sort of like a cinema to look style when it comes to shooting nudity it's it's never sort of like feels gratuitous it feels very sort of natural the sort of nudity that's included in the film and i don't know i mean it, it caught me off it's surprised when we have that initial sequence um where she's there masturbating in the bathtub and i think all the nudity after that it just felt as i said it, it never felt like it was out of place it always felt very sort of natural um and and fitting of the film yeah i agree Further viewing, I mean, it's not the easiest movie to sort of pair to something else. I mean, it's not like we get a huge amount of um, monster love stories, but you want to take <laughs> yeah, a crack no, at I, it? I, yeah, no, I, I think we mentioned, uh, we actually mentioned um, everything that I I was going to suggest for further viewing. So I was going to, for the fantasy and that kind of like um, odd girl element, I chose Emily. Yeah. And then um, for, you know, just the fact that I had, you know, I linked this movie early on when we watched Hellboy um, to Abe Sapien, I recommended, I I would say further viewing would be Hellboy 1 and 2. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I think um, those are are definitely good picks. I mean, mean, obviously the the most obvious one is if you're, as interest you want to see sort of like the roots of this character then you go back and you watch you know creature from the black lagoon the definitive gilman um and i think that's that's sort of like uh where where my just wants to go to i mean yes there are other creepy romances you can watch out there i mean you can watch hellraiser it's not it's not anywhere as romantic as this movie but it features uh uh a very unique romantic romantic element to it certainly so but um, yeah, those I think that was where I would sort of go. Go back and watch some like classic Hammer because it's certainly running throughout this throughout this film. Um, and I mean, the character of Giles, I mean, it's was originally written for Ian McKellen because um, Del Toro saw uh, Gods and Monsters, which is about James Whale, who was the director of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, um, and he himself i mean he was a closeted gay man and that's a real sort of inspiration for the character of giles i mean 
And um, it was just, as I say, it was unfortunate that McKen couldn't take the part, and he just emailed over to Richard Jenkins, who was it, who took on the part, and I think he did a really great job. It's very sort of subtle, and uh, as I said, it, it really sort of captures what what this character should be. So, so here we are. I mean, obviously, we're at the end of another season. Uh, we we did it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that it's not that impossible. Del Toro is kind of like one of those directors that we both like a lot. So I think that, you know, as we end this up with, you know, talking about, you know, as as just like our last season, we're going to talk about, you know, what our picks for best, worst, and hidden gem is. That's where the hard part is, is there's a lot of, you know, struggle and being okay with what you're going to pick as best, worst, and hidden gem. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what, which, what, which would you like to start with? Should we start with best then? Maybe we start with worst. Okay, we'll start with worst. Uh, worst is probably the easiest one for myself. Um, I know for myself the worst thing in this, uh, the filmography is Crimson Peak. Um, I found it uh, an absolutely tedious watch that uh, did nothing for me. It's very pretty, but at the same time it just feels very hollow at the same time. So that would be my one to burn out of this filmography for sure. I'm actually, uh, surprisingly, I think, you probably didn't think I would choose it, but I actually chose Crimson Peak as worse also. Oh, really? Yeah, because if I think about, because I think that if you think about Del Toro's films, there's not really bad movies. No. Like, they're not, there's nothing that stands out as bad. Even Crimson Peak has, you know, its elements that, you know, it, it could be, it's good at, like, you know, visuals and stuff like that, right? But the deal with Crimson Peak of why I ended up choosing it eventually, because it was really that or Blade Two, And... I sat down and I thought about it and I was like, I would much willingly rewatch Blade 2 again for its entertainment purposes yeah. than Crimson Peak, which is, you know, I watched it a second time and I thought it was, you know, I, it doesn't stand up to repeat viewings. And I think that that's one of the, that's one of the worst because with Del Toro, every single film that we've seen, I can picture myself going back and sitting down and re-watching it again and and yet you know crimson peak after watching it a second time i i really don't want to watch it a third time i think i've had enough <laughs> okay and uh what's the, what's the best of the filmography then how about you go first <laughs> yeah i knew you threw that at me um for myself i think this is probably gonna be a bit obvious but uh my favorite of the filmography is actually pacific rim <laughs> um, I mean yes I'm a Kaiju fan I love giant monster movies and I love giant mecha movies and it's really sort of tapped into such a wonderful vibe for myself I mean it's there's a lot of people out there who think that it's dumb and I think if you have got any sort of reference point of things like as I said such as like Godzilla then it really sort of plays into a lot of those tropes and you can see it's really just Del Toro doing his love, love letter to to giant monster movies and there's so many elements in that film just the design work and the characters and the world building that went into that film that just really just i just absolutely adore i mean it's yeah it's a big dumb dumb movie but at the same time it's just a lot of fun and whereas uh when i look at his other sort of big hollywood pictures i say like blade 2 and the hellboy movies it it feels very still separate to the rest of the filmography uh whereas Pacific Rim, while it is obviously still a sort of mainstream studio movie, 
and some of the little more traditional, it still feels very much part of the uh, Delta World filmography, and I think that's why it's it's one of those ones that I, I find myself coming back to more and more, so yeah. What about yourself, Kim? I definitely am happy that you chose Pacific Rim, not that I'm surprised that you chose okay. it. Okay. Because um, <laughs> I know your love for Pacific Rim. Um, that was definitely a contender for me, but I ended up after a lot of debate, I think I was between three movies, um, I ended up choosing the first movie that I watched of Del Toro's, and that's Pan's Labyrinth. I don't think that... I don't think that anything could ever beat Pan's Labyrinth in the sense that I really liked, you know, um, the villain. I yeah. really liked the fantasy. I really liked the girl, the little girl who played the role. Um, you know, there's a good balance between, you know, evil and... They're the amazing creature designs, and I don't think he will ever make a character quite as scary as you know the 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 the, the pale man, the pale right? <laughs> and I think that that's kind of like the peak of his career at that point. I I know it sounds like you know a pretty cliche choice. I know a lot of people are going to choose it. Like if they were to choose favorite Del Toro, yeah. they probably choose Pan's Labyrinth. Um, but I really think that, you know, Del Toro really knocked it out of the park in that one. Like, that one is one movie that I will, you know, no arguments, sit down and watch it over and over again. And I think at this point, like, at the, as of the last, um, last time that we reviewed it, I had already seen it, like, probably four times or something. Um, but that's because I haven't, I didn't see it, like, you know, it wasn't released that long ago, so... Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Pan's Labyrinth, really. I really like it a lot. It's well, it's funny how synonymous uh, the Pale Man has become with Del Toro. It's become almost like his, I don't know, his little sidekick. Cause it constantly uh, seems to turn up wherever he does, whenever someone like makes a reference to it. And uh, Most recently, I mean, Del Toro was, did a cameo on The Simpsons, where he's doing a, a court video to humanize Mr. Burns, and he's like talking about all the about how monsters are misunderstood and uh, mm. they cut to the Burns mansion and it's like this fantastical thing with all these different uh, monsters like Mr. Smithers is a centaur and the Pale Man is his doorman which I thought was just really <laughs> funny <laughs> Okay so let's move on <laughs> we're on our, obviously our third choice um, and that's the Hidden Gem yep. um, I had to ask you to re-clarify what Hidden Gem was because Del Toro's movies, let's face it, is mostly quite popular. Um, so, <laughs> what, what was your choice of uh, Hidden Gem? Um, my choice is a film that, w upon rewatching it for this uh, this season, I think I watched it a fair three or four times afterwards. I was that sort of, I forgot how good um, it was and was so enthralled by it. And uh, that is Kronos. Um, I re it's his debut film, and yes, it's obviously it's got its sort of flaws, but there's just a lot of visuals and certainly a lot of um, a lot of moments, and particularly the character of Angel, uh, the first appearance of Ron Perlman in a Del Toro movie that just really this uh, this just really makes me uh, resonate with. It. I just love his character and just the journey his character goes on, even as the villain. I think he just has so many interesting moments, such as like when he's uh, going back and forth to the clean room, or when he's just like sitting in his his little room that he's been assigned, um, looking at like um, 
rhinoplasty magazines. I think there's just so many like interesting shots and moments, and I think just the whole sort of concept, this unique take on the vampire mythos, just really sort of made it uh, makes it stand out for me. And I and I honestly forgot how good that film is because it had been a while since I saw it before we obviously revisited it for the season and. Um, yeah, I think Kronos is, is sort of like my little hidden gem. I mean, there's other films I'll point to, and I think I'm, I'm not going to see what they are until I obviously see what you chose, because I feel that you may have picked my second choice. But uh, what was your hidden gem? Okay, so the reason why I brought up the fact that I had to clarify with you what the hidden gem was. Yeah. And I had mentioned, I had already mentioned to you what, I was debating between, and then you told me that that title was fairly popular. So I ended up not choosing that one, and I chose my second choice, which is Kronos. Oh, really? <laughs> I was sure that you were going to say Mimic. I want to say Mimic, but then you told me it was popular, what? so I was like, if it's popular, it can't be a hidden gem, can it? It can be still popular. So... I mean, it, you only, when you look at the hidden gem, you look at the filmography, it's like, if I said, uh, said uh, Joe Moviegoer on the street, it's like, Name a Del Toro movie. I don't think that they were named Kronos, and I don't think they named Mimic, and I'd say don't think exactly, they do Dallas exactly. Backbone, so, so... Yeah. So, you know, like, you know, t- to be fair, I think that, you know, I think a lot of the Spanish-language ones yeah. were definitely more um, of a hidden gem. Um, but, like, if you're saying that Mimic can count, then I'm going to go to Mimic. Yeah. Um, because, honestly, Kronos and Mimic are... Um, I personally like Mimic more. But I also think Kronos is, um, I'm always a big fan of people going back to watching how a director debuts. And I think Kronos is like a solid effort. Um, so, I, I mean, my hidden gem that I have on paper right now is Kronos. But <laughs> <laughs> if we were to say, I would say Mimic is is, is also a hidden gem. Um, I really like, it's my type of movie, you know, like where it's, is definitely uh, one of those really competent kind of like uh, there's you know it's bugs and yeah. it's kind of like a creature feature like his take of a creature feature. I think like Mimic has a lot of really strong points to it, um, and and there's like just and plus there's like all these like cameos of people that <laughs> now are very famous also. So it's kind of like a starting point for a lot of people. Not only like Del Toro's first step into Hollywood as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, both of those films are, are hidden gems. Um, definitely worth checking out if you haven't. Wonderful. Um, so, I mean, this obviously brings us to the end of our second season. We hope you've enjoyed joining us for this trek for the Del Toro filmography. Um, certainly, I'd like to say thank you to all our guests. Uh, thank you to Greg. I'd also like to say thank you to Bubba Wheat from Flight Sites and Movie Nights. Um, thank you to Stephen from the Asian Cinema Film Club and Guido Ramblings. And uh, thank you to DJ from Simplistic Reviews. Yep. And uh, obviously, as well, I'd like to say thank you to Norman from Flick Hunter. So, a uh, very guest-heavy season. And I think it's been fun, obviously, inviting people on to... To, to share this uh, discussion with us and we certainly had some fun episodes there as well so you definitely uh, check those out uh, and as always you can find our full archive on mootandtpodcast.wordpress.com um, on there you can find our, our complete archive as well as you can check it out on Podomatic, iTunes, Spotify, Anchor uh, all over there and uh, wherever you happen to listen to us you know maybe leave us a like or a, a review 
or hit the subscribe button. It all helps raise the profile of the show. Uh, you can also follow us on both Facebook and Twitter, where we post interesting uh, bits, not only on the director, uh, but also interesting news pieces and reviews. Um, so that's uh, all on there. And I mean, obviously, our next set of episodes are going to be we're going to be now moving over to our after hours episodes and so yeah we have we have three things worked out right now uh we have our yes yeah we have our um we have our our i guess set theme right now is our collective choice which is a a sharp theme movie yep um which i believe will be our next episode uh our, the first episode to kick off the after hours yes yeah, so um, it's uh so our next one will be obviously our shark week episode and but I think we've we've chosen a really good one because obviously the first shot we we did we looked at the Meg, and this time we're looking at a real sort of classic of the shark movie genre. Would you say, Kim? Yes, uh, definitely one of my favorite. <laughs> um, as we're going to be looking at the classic Deep Blue Sea, um, and also and uh, we also got a couple of After Hours episodes that will be following that, where both myself and Kim will be sharing a couple of our picks and certainly if you want yeah, to our picks, yeah yeah uh, certainly if you uh want to check out more of our sort of the movies which sort of inspire us and that we uh, enjoy make sure you join us for our friday film club that we post every friday on the blog um each week myself and kim we both pick a film will there be a theme will there won't be you have to check it and find out but we've had some really interesting selections since we started doing it and we urge you as always to tell us what you're going to be watching the weekend and uh and, and we'll share it as part of the roundup so uh that's uh as i said you can find all that on the on the blog uh but uh again just thank you uh, everyone for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this this season um and you know stay tuned for season three we will be revealing our director of choice very soon in the upcoming episode. So uh, keep tuned to find out who that's going to be. And um, until uh, next time, I'd just like to find my co-host, uh, Kim, as always. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we will see you next time for Deep Blue Sea.